Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. When Roy Wood Jr. started interning in morning radio and working in his native Birmingham, Alabama, he initially thought he might be the next Ricky Smiley. Wood's determination and hustle, as well as his talent for prank calls, has led him on a slightly different path, slowly but surely up the show business ladder. From MC and feature in one comedy club after another through the South, Wood has built up his brand and his comedy material. And by 2010, he was ready for Last Comic Standing, where he finished third in the NBC contest seventh season. After a year of theater touring, Wood landed a gig co-starring on the TBS sitcom Sullivan and Son. Several appearances on Conan and ESPN later, Wood made his biggest move yet, becoming a correspondent on Comedy Central's The Daily Show, where his first night on the air coincided with that of his new boss and host, Trevor Noah. Wood broke down all of the keys to his success and the life lessons along the way. So let's get to it! So, Roy Wood Jr., thanks for letting me in your home. I'm sorry I don't have a couch. Well, you know, you're, you're like basic cable money. Yeah, no. Try, <laughs> Pay cable, you get a or broadcast, you get a couch. Try explaining it to my friends. I'm going to get another couch. I just, you know. You're in between couches. Yeah, yeah there we go. Because I, I had to sell most of my stuff in L.A. because I had a two-bedroom in L.A. And I didn't know what I was gonna walk in. I knew I wasn't gonna be able to afford a two-bedroom in New York mm-hmm. so I just sold mostly everything like big stuff beds and TV stands and right desks and, and it's I not just like you know where it was gonna fit so I just, I'll just buy it again I guess and it's not like you sign a lifetime contract no with Comedy Central that's true but you want to hope that it goes well <laughs> enough that you can one day afford a two-bedroom I got that desk for free though Okay. Yeah, I've become very frugal since I've moved here, man. Well, how many moves have you made in your comedy career? Literal moves. This is second. Well, I went from L.A. So I started in Florida while I was in college. I don't really count graduating and moving back in with my mom as a move. Right. That's what all high school. Yeah, that's, that's just what a, all college graduates That's just a co- college graduate move. Um. Birmingham to L.A., back to Birmingham, back to L.A., to New York. Okay. So that was the run. I went home for a year and a half to host my own radio show on a station that I started at as an intern. And the plan was to build that into a nice syndicated behemoth the way Steve Harvey did his morning show. But as soon as I got back to Birmingham, I booked a sitcom in L.A. that was on TBS, Sullivan and Son. And I booked the pilot. It gets picked up. We go through season one. And I'm trying to do the sitcom in L.A. and radio in Birmingham on a satellite box. And I'm up at three in the morning in L.A. <laughs> and it's just it was too much. And they they fired me. You got to decide which one you want to do. Well, I'm sorry. This is network. This is <laughs> television. This is radio. Like, they, first of all, they sh- you should have I like that they both. They made it seem like you were going to choose them. Even though... Even though Steve Harvey does nine different things and still does all right, Tom Joyner does nine different things. Ricky Smiley is all great syndicated urban radio hosts with four and five million listeners. 
but God forbid I leave Birmingham for a couple months to shoot 10 episodes of a summer sitcom. <laughs> well, but when you were a kid, though, was radio the first dream slash goal for you? Nah, I wanted to be an astronaut off the top. Yeah. That was the first There we one. go. And then somewhere around fourth or fifth grade, um, my mom, I wanted to go to space camp up in Huntsville. I'm from I was going to say, yeah, they have... Yeah. Some NASA stuff in Alabama. Yeah, so it's literally an hour up the freeway. I go, yo, I really want to go to space camp. And my mom was like, well, I can't afford that. And my my older, I have an older half-brother, Arthur. And I'll never forget this. He took me to this space and flight museum mm-hmm. in Huntsville. And I saw all of that stuff, man. And I was like, wow, this is, yeah. And I was so inspired. And I came home, and then I saw... All of the fucking math you have to know to be an astronaut. Right. You, I hate it, math. To this day, still hate math. It's, hate it. It's the, that was the subject I couldn't stand. That was the subject I avoided like the devil. And when I saw all of the math you needed, I was like, fuck that, not doing it. So then I moved over to firefighter, and that was pretty much what I wanted to be up until maybe three or four months before I graduated high school. Okay. And my mom was stressing, well, don't just be a firefighter, be a fire inspector and go get the degrees you need so that you qualify for the promotions that you can get later on in your career as a firefighter. All right, cool. That makes sense. Fire inspector. Start doing the research on fire inspection and realize you got no chemistry. And one of the main tenets of chemistry is fucking math. (laughs) And I was like, fuck that shit. (laughs) <laughs> and around the same time, and this is true, um, I was a big sports guy. You know, I grew up around sports, watching it, played everything. Mm-hmm. And But that was never one of the dreams. No, that was, that was never one of the dreams. Until my senior year of high school, uh, there were two people, uh, Stuart Scott at ESPN and this guy, Van Earl Wright, oh. with, at the time he CNN? was with CNN Headline Sports. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm not sure where he is now. I think he's at Fox Sports somewhere. He's still in the business. But those two guys' styles of broadcast was so unorthodox at the time. Right. Even Stuart Scott, you know, even up until his death, it was still there was no one that was doing what he was doing. And they made sports sound fun and hip. And I was like, all right, well, if they can make that's what I do at the lunch table. We talk about sports and crack jokes. Seems like that's what they do at ESPN. All right, what do I need to major in to do that? Broadcast. Your daddy was a broadcaster. Oh, really? Oh, cool. All right. So then I started looking at course curriculum. At this point, you're trying to pick a school. You're filling out college applications. And I looked at the journalism department at uh, Florida A&M University. And they had all the courses listed that you got to take over four years. And I noticed that you only had to take one year of math. (laughs) I go, really? A year of math? I go, well, how much math? And they go, well, anything up to algebra two. But if you want, you could just take college algebra. I go, what the fuck is college algebra? And they go, oh, well, it's somewhere underneath algebra one. It's like less than algebra one. It's base level algebra. Now, mind you, I went to an alternative high school in Birmingham. We were already on on trig and calculus. So you're telling me to get this degree, 
I have to take the same math I took in the eighth grade. Fucking sign me up, bro. I'm going to be a sportscaster. I love how your all of your your calculus of finding a career was doing the math to find out how you could not have to do the math. I hate math. And I respect math, but that don't mean I need to know it. Like, I watched The Martian. I won't spoil it for the listeners, but there's a lot of math in that fucking movie of figuring out how to save a stranded space dude. Yeah. And he would have died if I was like, <laughs> if I was the guy in charge of trying to rescue somebody. Mm-hmm. What if you were the guy stranded on Mars? I would have died. If I was the guy stranded on Mars, I would have died. I'm not going to say whether or not he dies. I'm just telling you I would have died in the mm-hmm. first 10 minutes of the film. Like immediately. Oh, I'm dead. What is the oxygen caliber? So you get, you're going for broadcasting. What well, that in baseball. Like I thought I was going to. The other thing is that at the time, this is 1996. Florida A&M's baseball team sucked, man. Trash. It's a trash ass team. And I go, okay, I suck at baseball. Maybe that's the team I can actually play for. But what you don't realize about college athletics is that, especially with baseball, there's a lot of really good players that play at small schools. Baseball's not like football where you must go to these 50 programs right. to get respect in the pros. Baseball, you could literally play for a two-year community college and still get drafted if your numbers are good. So I went out on the baseball field and was like, oh, shit. Y'all, y'all good. <laughs> I thought this was like high school. So, yeah, I fell back into um, just working at Shoney's. That was my first job. I got cut from the baseball team two hours into tryouts. And I left, and I put my glove up, and I went right back out the dorm room door, and I went to Shoney's on Appalachian Parkway, no, on North Monroe, and applied for a job. And that's how the journey began. Now, when when did comedy begin to seem like something you could do for a career? It was screenwriting first. It wasn't even stand-up. Okay, it so it wasn't the broadcasting, writing. it was writing. Well, I loved broadcasts. I loved learning that. Like, So, you know, I was on that path. In my head, I was just going to go try to get a job at ESPN. I'm going to figure out a way to do funny stuff. Like, right. I never had an inkling to be a stand-up, but I knew that I could kind of crack jokes and find stuff, you know, at a different approach topics from a different angle. And so when I looked around, you know, at the landscape, like there was there was a screenwriting class and I tried to write a play in high school and it ended up turning into a movie. And it's like I was just writing this movie for no reason. Like there was no class. It was like I wasn't in theater or anything like that, but it just Felt like something cool to do, so I just wrote the shit. And so I saw a screenwriting class. I go, wow, that'd be pretty cool if I could learn how to do that. And maybe I could make a movie one day. Maybe I could do something like that. So I take the screenwriting class, and the teacher was a guy that, you know, knowing what I know now about Hollywood, he was basically like a career character actor and maybe a bit player and probably over 100 to 150 different television shows over the course of three decades. Like, the guy had been in everything. Maybe not more than nine or ten lines in anything. Right. But he'd been in everything, seen everything. To me, he was a star. I was like, 
cool, man. Because you would recognize him, right? Yeah. Well, one of those one of those guys you're like, oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like that dude. I see, he always <laughs> the bald headed black FBI dude, like that type of guy. Right. You know, like Tommy Lee Jones is giving the lines, but right over his, sh- his shoulder is the FBI dude with the satcom. Uh, General, president's on the phone. Like that's it. That's his only line in the whole movie. But still get paid. Yeah, but that dude planted a seed, man. That dude planted a fucking seed, and it got my brain churning about Hollywood and L.A. and, you know, writing a film. We had to get up and act out two pages from whatever we wrote. Like, we had to write, like, a, you know, a five-page scene and then a ten-page scene, and, you know, you would act a page or two of it. And I would get a chuckle here and there. And I kind of liked that. I liked how that felt. And so my junior year, um, as part of my course requirements for journalism, you have to take a public speaking class. And that was like the whole voice and diction and right. enunciation and how to project from the diaphragm and all of that shit. Because you're still on a microphone. Yeah, exactly. So I take this public speaking class, and this fucking lady, man, like she, there was one week where it was all impromptu speeches. That was the whole week was impromptu speeches. Every day, well, three, whatever, all the class sessions for that week, she would give you a topic. You had 15 minutes to prepare on this topic, and then you had to get up and present in front of the class. And this is 1998, man. We're talking dial-up internet. We're just getting cell phones at this yeah. point. like. I and got my if, first cell phone in 98. Yeah. yeah, and so there's no way to Google these topics. You just no. got to f- straight freestyle about some shit that you know nothing about. And all three classes that week, when I did my um, impromptu speech, it got laughs. It got laughs, like serious laughs. And, I mean, I'm not sitting here and saying that. Man, I got a standing ovation. That's when I knew I was going to be a famous comedian. It was just, it was just funnier than what mundane shit everybody else was doing. So it was just a departure from the norm and it got chuckles and she thought that I was doing it on purpose and she fucking gave me an F every fucking every all three days that week. She gave me an F. Wow. I made a C in the class overall, but I just, I distinctly remember not caring. I remember not caring. And anytime when I got up to speak after that, my goal was to make the class laugh just once because right. I knew if I did it more than once, she was going to be an asshole about it. But it was, that was like, if you want to call that my first open mic in a sense, to some degree it was. Like, at least that's what it felt like. So once Their approval I, mattered more. Correct. The approval of the class mattered the audience. more. Yeah, and one. you still want to graduate, and it's a... Then the, then the critic. It's a required course. The audience versus the critic. Yeah, that's literally what it was. Critics hate me. <laughs> I'm getting love in these streets. So, I, you know, that was... If there's ever a, wow, I think I could maybe do comedy, and I was always curious about stand-up, but I just never had the guts to do it in high school. We bounced, I bounced around through a lot of school systems as a kid. In, all over Birmingham. So I didn't really settle into having a regular rotation of friends until high school when I started playing sports. Okay. So once I started fitting in, I wasn't going to fuck it up by trying to make the class laugh. 
I'm made fun of. Like, I just got a girlfriend. I'm cool. Like, varsity baseball, I have a girlfriend, I have a car. It's raggedy, but still, you're a junior with a car. That's That just doesn't junior happen. You have a car and a yeah. girlfriend, oh, and you're on the God, varsity baseball dude, team. Dude, there's no way I'm screwing this up. So that's the beauty of college, though, man. You get to be someone new. You get to rewrite your identity in college. Sure. And you get to be what you've wanted to be around people who can't judge you or call you out for what you used to be because they're morphing too. And that was that was the beginning of, you know, if we're talking origin stories in terms of actually wanting to do stand-up. And so, you know, I would listen to uh, Red Fox. You know, I had the Red Fox and Richard Pryor albums in the attic. I'm the same as a lot of other comics. My parents had that stuff. I snuck and listened to it as a kid. Um, Chris Rock was starting, was just coming out the blocks yeah. when I got to college. So Bring the Pain, Big Ass Jokes, like that it just hit. So that VHS, Chris Rock VHS was getting passed around the dorm to everybody. We're all watching that. And we watched a little, little bit of Martin, and I like George Carlin. And so, you know, I just watched all those guys, but I just never really thought about actually trying stand-up. And so what did it for me um, there's a guy from Birmingham by the name of Ricky Smiley. Hmm. So Ricky Smiley now is, he's the host of a nationally syndicated radio show. I think he has like four, five, six million listeners or whatever. He's on Dish Nation. He's, he's done a lot in his career. But at the time, Ricky was the host of BET's Comic View. And this is when Comic View still mattered in the comedy lexicon. It was a very relevant urban comedy showcase show. Right. And it was like the mainstream cable version of Def Jam. Eventually, Comic View, in my opinion, became to be part of the problem of the evolution of black comedy. But at that time, in that space and time... Right, in the mid-late 90s, there weren't a lot of places to get on TV. Correct, and this shit came on four nights a week on BET, Twice, like this, Comet View was so hot, it came on at nine, and then they showed it again at midnight. And BET had no problem, and you would watch it twice. You would watch the same episode twice because the shit was hilarious. Mm -hmm. Everybody was killing it, and Ricky Smiley was the host that year. No, Ricky Smiley was one of the breakout comics that year, Mm -hmm. and Ricky's from Birmingham. Ricky is from literally six exits up the freeway for me, if that. I grew up in West End. You know, Ricky was over on the north side, over by the airport and everything in Kingston. And that was the first time I saw anybody from Birmingham on television. Because, like, you believe that, well, I'm down here in the south, you know, I ain't got what it takes. You got to be in New York or L.A. and You got to do... There's a fucking dude from Kingston on television. From fucking, ca- I used to listen to him on my school bus rides, and he's on cable. Well, shit, if he can do it, there's got to be a way I can do it. And that was when the light bulb went off, and that's when, you know, you start going over to Florida State. I had a couple classmates <laughs> that were at, they were at Florida. They were like, they were they were messing with chicks over at Florida State. So I would go over and be their wingman, mm-hmm. and they would go up in the dorm and do what they do. So I got to sit tight for an hour on the couch and entertain one of her friends or whoever the roommate was. <laughs> I've got to entertain the roommate in the 
dorm lobby or some shit. And <laughs> talk about a hell gig. Yeah. So where you from? Where you? And so one of the girls was really into the little student talent nights that they had. He had them once a week at Florida State. So I would walk over there with her, and you know I saw a lot of greats at a you know different time in their career. I saw Lavelle Crawford, Earthquake. Bobby Lee pre-Matt TV. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a lot of good comics that came through Florida State. And, you know, that's what planted the seed. And I was like, all right, well, I'll go up here and try that. And I did, and it got a couple chuckles. And I just did one of the same speeches that I had from, from the class. class. And that was, like, kind of my the first kind of delving into it. And then, you know, from that point on, I started going up to Birmingham once a month. And that's the thing about the South is that, you know, the South only has, generally speaking, one comedy club per city and open mic is once a month. So if you want to get on stage multiple times, you have to drive, you have to travel. Yeah, because I was going to say, what uh, what comedy clubs are in Tallahassee or where's A&M? It's in Tallahassee. Tallahassee. Uh, It's literally like five blocks from Florida State. Oh, okay. but at the time, there was, a, there, was a, there was a weekend room. There was a Friday-Saturday room in a hotel in the mm-hmm. Ramada Inn. It was the okay. comedy zone. So you had a lot of regional comedy chains like that that would, you know, in small markets, small and mid-major markets, they would rent out some hotel room. And like, it was the same thing in Jacksonville. Like, there's yeah. a comedy club in a Ramada or a Holiday Inn or something like that. And that's where you cut your teeth. There's no... There's some freestanding comedy clubs, but you have to go up to Birmingham and Atlanta and Tampa and Orlando to get to those. But you're fucking 19. You just want to get on stage. So I would take the Greyhound up to Birmingham, do open mic, suck, and go back to the bus station and take the bus right back to campus. And So you wouldn't spend the night at your... No, fuck no. My mom didn't. Mom's house. My mom was infuriated when, I, when she found out I was doing comedy. Mm-hmm. As well, she should have been because I'm, I'm a junior, and at this point, my GPA is like a two, three or something atrocious. And she like, thought you were going to be a fire inspector. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm not doing that math. Shut up, Joyce. You're like, well, these rooms are hot. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so you know, I went up to Atlanta. So pretty much, most of my junior year was spent on the Greyhound, and then the spring semester of my junior year, I got the bright idea to squeeze all 15 credit hours into three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Mm -hmm. so that Thursday night or Friday morning, I could take the Greyhound to wherever I needed to go, do the jokes, do what I need to do, and be back by Monday afternoon for a Monday night class or whatever. And that was kind of how the road life kind of started for me. And so when my mom saw what I was doing and the deal we had made when she found out I was doing comedy, the deal was, if I'm bringing in good grades, you shut up. Literally, like, just you don't get to preach. You don't get to say a single word about me doing comedy if my grades are solid. If your concern is me gra- not graduating, just let me. I will graduate. Right. But if my grades are good, you leave me alone. And I made Dean's List. Mm. And so when I made Dean's List, that second semester of my junior year going into my senior year, um, my mom's fucking put down on a car for me. Uh, uh, 2000 Ford Focus. It was the first model year of the Ford Focus. 
And it's funny because she bought me a car and then handed me the first car note. It was like, all I did was put down on it. You got to keep up the payments. Why the fuck would you give me a bill? She goes, well, how much do you spend a month on bus tickets? And I was like, "Uh, about $90. Well, this is $250. This should have. I was like, all right, that makes sense. All right, fine. (laughs) So that was, that was the beginnings, you know? And while I was in school, I had that car, man. I fucking drove the fuck out that car, man. I went anywhere. If it was within eight hours of Tallahassee, I was trying to tell a joke there. And how were you lining up those gigs initially? Well, with no kind of. Well, with the comedy zone. Portfolio or. So the comedy zone um, in the South is probably one of the largest regional booking chains of stand up comedy. And so what they do. They hit up, at the time, I'd say, I'd estimate that the Comedy Zone had probably 20 to 30 cities that they booked, mostly for one night a week, but some for two to three nights a week. And so at this point, I'm the house MC in Tallahassee. So I'm rotating with other guys, but I'm one of the house MCs. So I'm a good opening act. The club manager has to send in a club, has to send in a report. Like these, like comedy chains like that, they have to report back to the to the headquarters. Like the Comedy Zone corporate guys in Charlotte, mm-hmm. they'll call Tallahassee on Monday. How were the shows this weekend? Were the comedians funny? Who to, to, to so to keep tabs on who the fuck right. to not rebook anymore? And that's when the club manager goes, "Well, this guy Roy, he's doing a good job for me. You may want to look into giving him some feature work. Let's." All right, well, we'll try him in Biloxi, and we'll see how he does. Well, you get sent over to Biloxi a couple of Mondays every every other month. Mm-hmm. You do well in Biloxi. Well, then Pensacola catches word of that, and Pensacola's a better room than Biloxi. So if you do you do Biloxi, then you get Dothan. You do well in Dothan, you get Macon, and you're recording yourself. Uh, well, at least I was. I was recording myself. What did you use? Dude. <laughs> I had a Panasonic VHS uh, camcorder, not not camcorder, like video recorder, like the full size shoulder, yeah, like the big boy. Um, eventually, I was able to afford a JVC VHSC that recorded on the mini cassettes, um, and so I would record myself, and I would come back and you know watch the tape for critique, but more importantly, I was creating film of myself performing in different places. So the cities that weren't affiliated with the Comedy Zone, Tampa, Savannah, Columbia, South Carolina, Chattanooga, Knoxville, Nashville, as you get up north of Atlanta, it's a different region where each city is kind of independent, but each city is also, if if you work Chattanooga, Knoxville is more likely to work you. Chattanooga's more likely to work you if they know you work Atlanta. Atlanta's more likely to work you if they know you work Macon. So you each club is affiliated and kind of connected, and the reputations of those clubs help you out. So and it's like a domino. Yeah, and so right. like I try to explain to comics, like on the road in the South and the Midwest, it's a different matriculation from L.A. or New York, where if you're on the coast. You go to whatever open mics, you meet other comics, and you go to other open mics, and you stand, you meet the bookers, you shake a hand, you create relationships, and eventually 
you get in places from just showing up and shaking hands and just being right place, right time. In the South, you can't fucking drive seven hours from Tallahassee to Columbia, South Carolina to hang out, to hopefully one day get, you can't do that. So you got to take a headshot, you got to take a VHS tape of yourself, and you got to mail it to these bookers. And that's what he did. And it's literally like applying for a job. But every city is a different employer. So I would spend the bulk of my afternoons um, just, you know, making VHS dubs of my shows mm-hmm. and mailing them off to bookers. And I couldn't even afford headshots at the time. <laughs> I went to Sears and did like the $30 Sears portrait pack. Like a decent professionally produced headshot mm-hmm. should cost you anywhere from two to $400 once you get hire a photographer and you print like a thousand headshots that are nice and glossy and beautiful I had one thirty dollar fucking print from sears and i took that shit to kinko's and what'd you wear for that like this for black this? just black button down shirt it's mm-hmm. a horrible picture i'll send i'll send you a, i'll send you the jpeg <laughs> for it's a god awful fucking oh man and so i would go to kinko's and get the photo stock paper and stand at the copy machine and make copies of this one Sears print that I had and that cost $2 a print. And I would mail those with the headshots. I would mail that with the VHS tapes. And that's how I, that's how I started like trying to acquire new cities to work in. Now, somewhere in there is a cover letter, a bio, um, recommendations from other comedians that already work those rooms. And you start learning the psychology of of that process, which was repetition. So I would send bookers, I had a schedule. I would send a book, I would contact you twice a month. So it would go, the three forms of contact were tangible packet, email, or fax. <laughs> Back in those days. Right. 99, to this point we're 2000, almost 01. You could fax, and like that was acceptable to fax your avails in. So I would mail you a packet. I'd give you four weeks to ignore it. And after you ignore it, I would send you another email. Mm -hmm. Wait two weeks, send you a fax. At this point, we're at the two-month mark. At the two-month mark, I send you a new packet. But the cover letter in the packet goes, well, I don't know if you had a chance to see that one, but um, I had some different material, and this is a much better tape. Uh, We'd love you have an opportunity to check this one out, please just, if you've already discarded it, great, but if you haven't, please discard the, the stuff that I've already sent you. Oh, okay. It was the same fucking video from two months ago. <laughs> no, you didn't watch it. And so, watch, rinse, repeat, and I had a fucking, I had a fucking spreadsheet, and I kept track of what city I contacted when, and when I said what to who, and after about four months, if you're still ignoring me, I ramped it up to three contacts a week. And eventually, I would get a no. And that's the one thing that I learned. And that's what, like, college. Where, where did you learn that from? I'd, I'd have to say college, man. I'd have to say from Florida A&M. Because in journalism, in my journalism classes, we were taught about contacting sources and how you have to sometimes be persistent mm-hmm. if you're trying to get a particular angle on the story. And... People didn't really respect student journalists 
and they respected you even less when they know you went to Florida A&M and not Florida State. So people wouldn't return phone calls, people wouldn't return emails, and you would be persistent about it. But then what I learned is that if I roll up in your fucking office in a nice suit with that camera right there beside me, you're going to talk to me. Or you're, at the minimum, you're going to give me, you're going to pass me off. I'm a priority now. Right. Because I've shown, I've, I've demonstrated to you that I'm not going away. So. You mean business. Yeah. So tell me yes or tell me no, but you will not ignore me. It's just not, it's not even an option for you. So that's how you were able, that's how we were able to book stories and get interviews. And we, like in college, they had us covering real, real stories for class. And you're by yourself. You're one man band. You set up the camera, you frame the shot, then you stand in front of the camera, do your, well, we are here live at the blah, 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 blah. And then you go turn the camera off, watch the clip. If you like it, good. If not, stand out there and do it again. White balance, uh, the uh, whole fucking nine, man. All by yourself? Yeah, by yourself. So these comedy bookers, they, especially in the South, man, they love to blow people off and just, oh, yeah, some guy. Nah, man. So I would just persistently beat the shit out of your mailbox, your fax machine, and your fucking email. Like, I didn't give a fuck, man. And usually every four to five months, you get an answer. And some people say, hey, just keep sending in your veils mm-hmm. and we'll see. And in the meantime, how, how often were you getting work? I was working. It's always been an increase since I started in 98. But at this point, I was probably working six to six to seven days a month which was up from two days a month the year before. So, you know, it might be a run. Like, you might do a three-day run where you do Dothan, Alabama, Ozark, Alabama, and then Fort Walton Beach. And that's a three-day run of shows, and that's all you have for another two weeks. And, you know, I'm still trying to expand. And so once I graduated from college is where it really got better for me. So I graduate 2001, I move back home to Birmingham. Now I'm four hours north, so I'm closer to Kentucky, Indiana, Missouri, you know, the other side of Arkansas, getting into, you know, right. Oklahoma. And a lot more cities are within a day's drive. Correct. So what I figured out was if I could, if I book, let's say, let's say I book Lexington Wednesday, Thursday, I was sent a packet a month out from Lexington. I would send a packet to Cincinnati and go, hey, I'm passing through. Um, doing a gig in Lexington. Is it possible to get five quick minutes or you know, whatever, whatever? Mm-hmm. Averaging about 60 to 70% on that play. So I would get guest sets in those cities. So I would go to Cincinnati and do a seven-minute guest set the day before I'm supposed to be in Lexington. And if I had somewhere to sleep, fine. If not, sleep in the car at the truck stop, whatever. The next, because I know I'm getting a hotel the next day. Right. So then what I would do is take the tape of me doing a guest set in Cincinnati and clip the front and back end of my set where you never see me walk on stage, you never see me walk off stage. It looks like I'm sending you a snippet in the middle of my set. Right. I would take that Cincinnati bit, send that to Columbus, send it to Cleveland. Send it to Toledo. Hey, I already work Cincinnati. Um, do you have any weeks? <laughs> oh, you work Cincinnati? 
yeah, I worked Cincinnati just 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 last week. I was did Cincinnati and went over to Lexington. Oh yeah, Jeff's a great guy. Yeah, he sure is a great guy. They didn't fucking know that it was a guest set. Cincinnati right. never approved me. So once I figured that out, that was the play to start reaching other rooms was persistence and abuse, basically abuse them to death in the mailbox while at the same time tricking them into thinking that my worth was more than what it actually is, which is all what entertainment is for the most part. It's to some degree smoke and mirrors and I need to Fake it until you make it? Correct. And that's what I figured out. And so then if there were certain rooms that I wanted to do, even if I didn't have a get close, I'd hit them with the I'm passing through. Because then you think I'm already a working comic. Hey, man, I got a set that I'm working on for a showcase. Is it okay if I come by and grab five minutes? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. You go in, you blaze that five to seven minute set. If the right person saw you, if the manager saw you or whatever, at this point, you're seeing comics you know that you've worked with before. Right. So you stay and mingle the club manager. Wow, that was a really good set. Why haven't you worked here? Well, I didn't know who I needed to talk to. Who I didn't need to talk to. I'm <laughs> going to make sure that you email Chuck in the morning and tell him <laughs> I said, <laughs> my fuckers was offering me work. And so that was, that was the South, man. You just work like that and then once you get in the rooms then the new battle becomes trying to work your way up from middle act to headliner and then once you're a headliner to get them to pay you more and you know all of that but so much of that they try to tie into television credits so was there a turning point for you where you didn't have to worry about hustling for no. gigs every weekend or, or was it just the the hustle changed the hustle changes I still feel like now I have to hustle. I'm on the daily show and that's a blessing. Yeah. And it's a great thing, but it's only a great thing if you figure out a way to capitalize on it. So that requires focus and foresight and actual, you have to put goals in front of yourself. Okay, well, what am I trying to achieve this year? Like for me this year, the goal in 2016 at least my goal with The Daily Show, as best I can, is to be as funny as possible um, and as poignant as possible on issues other than race. I can do race, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with it. But I want to make sure that I'm balanced enough to attack other issues with the same level of you know veracity. Right. So that requires making sure that I'm reading up on stuff other than race and you know, educating myself so that you know, making it funny is easy, but I need the information first. So there's definitely been for me now a process of educating myself every day. And as much as somebody focuses on doing a push up every day, I have to make sure I'm feeding my brain certain things because I'm, I don't know what I'm going to need to draw from that to make something funny. And that's as hard as sitting in a hotel room and stuffing envelopes with VHS tapes. It's the same level of tediousness. Sometimes it's fun, sometimes I don't enjoy it, but I respect the fruit that it'll bear on the back end, so I do it without complaint. There were a number of steps between those two 
No, that's parts what, of your career though. No, that's all that happened. I was <laughs> you were mailing videotapes and then you're on the Daily Show. Yeah, Dothan, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> I did a show for some dope boys in Dothan, and then I just went straight to. Well, no, because yeah. you said you worked uh, in Birmingham radio. Yeah, for a while so, in Birmingham. Yeah, so, and then I became aware of you through Last Comic Standing. So I left Birmingham in '07 for LA. So when I moved, I moved to Birmingham in 2001 after I graduated, and I interned at the radio station with my broadcast degree, parlayed that up into co-hosting and producing the uh, Buckwild Morning Show in 95.7 Jams, and I did the prank phone calls. And so when YouTube hit in 2004, listeners were taking my pranks and putting them on YouTube, and so I was able to sell CDs to make a little extra money. Thankfully, the radio station never gave me any grief about travel. And that's the one thing I'll always be thankful for, man, is that they let me stretch my wings on the air. But anytime I needed to be gone, you can go. And I could pre-record segments and make sure stuff was in there, but they didn't need me in studio every how, single day. How much did the radio credit help you get even more club gigs or better club gigs? Um, it wasn't the radio as much as it was the prank phone calls. Okay. Because, you know, some booker in Columbia... Columbia, Missouri doesn't care about you being on the radio in Birmingham. Yeah, but the prank phone calls. So there was this website, I think it's still up, uh, radioonline.com, and it was like, if you're like a radio station, you get all the special, you get access to information that the general public doesn't have about radio, and it's all at your fingertips so that you don't have to check every single website. Mm -hmm. So I took my prank phone calls, and I started checking cities, Cities where I wasn't yet booked as a performer. And then I checked what the urban and rock radio stations were and which ones of those stations did not have a syndicated morning show. So non-syndicated local morning shows in cities where I was not performing, mm -hmm. they all got free prank phone call packs. And so the one thing I did know about radio DJs, especially in smaller markets and most markets, they're not getting paid a lot. They can't afford to pay a comedian. I was barely getting paid. I worked there five years before I even got health benefits. So I know you're broke, and I know you need content, but content costs money, and I know your cheap-ass boss isn't going to give you the money to get content. So here's the deal. I'm going to send you four prank phone calls a week. You play as many as you want. Only thing you do in return is say my name. Just say my fuck. You don't have to say my website. Mm. Just say my fucking name, and the pranks are yours. I got like twenty to thirty cities to agree to that. I let that marinate for like three months, and just mm -hmm. let that relationship just just simmer on a crock pot. Let the listeners be familiar with. Oh, there's this funny guy, Roy Wood Jr. Third month prank guy. I reach back out to these same comedy clubs mm -hmm. that were ignoring me, or at this point, just sending your avails. We get, hey, just letting you know. I'm on with uh, Weasel and Sarah every morning. I do a prank phone call, whatever, whatever. I'll be able to come in there and uh, promote the show. So just let me know if you guys want to. I'll be passing through. Let me know if you want to stop in. Oh, oh, we would love to. You, you want to come play the room? Come come play the room. It was the only feature in some of these markets doing radio. I was doing more radio than the fucking headliner. And the DJs are Because you static. were already part of the radio family. Exactly. So now I'm on the air for a fucking hour. I'm not in for that five to ten minute chit chat that right. your headliner was in for i'm in for an hour so 
that gave me leverage to go back to comedy clubs and go, you should put me, you should book me in your room because I can get you free radio time. And that's when I became an asset to the clubs. And then once you get in there, then it's, oh, you, oh, you, well, he's funny too. So fuck it. Let's book him. (laughs) You know, so much of, of your process involves involves doing math. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing you didn't want to (laughs) do turned out to be the thing. That you honed in on, but it was a different kind of math. Yeah, I mean, dude, I would go. You to were crunching numbers. You were crunching numbers. Yeah. Oh, I was looking at the spreadsheets and ratings, and I was looking at the, the demographics. Ratings. Okay, well, the comedy club advertises with the rock it's, station. It's in all. The city. Al- it's all different form of yeah. algebra. But the hip hop station gets more ratings. So mm-hmm. why would I go where the comedy club is? I'm gonna go where they aren't, because then they'll think that they're getting more coverage, and you know it helps sell a ticket or two. But yeah. you know that's. That definitely, that part of radio helped my comedic expansion immensely. That and then doing Bob and Tom radio. I'd be remiss to not mention Bob and Tom because um, I did their show in 2005 and instantly I booked like five cities before I even got back to my hotel. Because they're the big syndicated syndicated, radio show throughout the Midwest. Midwest. And so those guys did, and I've said this before and again, in the same year, I did Letterman and Bob and Tom. Letterman got me the industry respect and leverage that I needed to forward the bigger vision, but Bob and Tom got me road gigs. But the, I, it was as effectual to my career as Letterman. Was just sitting in with old with Chick, Bob, Tom, Christy Lee. Like, as soon as I walked out the room, five cities I'd never worked before were ready to book me simply because I did Bob and Tom. That didn't happen when I did Letterman. Now, Letterman got me an agent. It got me some industry. It got me meetings with networks. Mm -hmm. So it's not something to just, you know, shake a stick at. But it was two different types of effectual, you know, two different types of effects on my career. So Bob and Tom, to me, moved the needle just as much. So, you know, somewhere in between all of that, you know, I'd started doing... I think in 02, I did Comedy Central had this Laugh Riots competition. Oh, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> where <laughs> they were, it's basically, it's all. That was a like, send in. I remember I, I sent in a videotape for that. Yeah. Because you had to send a videotape in the mail. Yeah, you had to mail a videotape. But this That's is where people. That's how old school it was. This is where I forgot. God bless Shayna Brown and Ann Harris for having to watch all of those fucking tapes. Oh, my God. And Joanne. Um. I sent in tapes to them, and I got to the semifinals two or three years, and then the third year I got to the finals, and that was enough to get me on Premium Blend, which was enough to get me on the Star Search reboot that they did with Arsenio oh, yeah. at that time, which was enough to get me in the mix with Comics Unleashed and a couple of other places and stuff. So, you know, it was it was definitely, everything is connected, you know? Everything is connected, and so it was, it was really cool, man, to like to do Letterman and do Bob and Tom and to start seeing things start to happen in my career. And that's when I moved to L.A. It was 2007. Okay. So, you know, it was it was just it was just a different time, man. You know, the 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 one regret I have in my career 
I wish that I had moved sooner. That's the only thing I, I think I would have done differently, but, you know, radio was, radio represented structure and stability. And, you know, comedy is so uncertain. And I finally moved out my mom's house in like 04, 05. So I'm working the road enough to pay my bills. I'm kind of co-headlining here and there. I'm mm -hmm. doing, I'm still kind of sort of featuring, but my rent was $540 a month. My car note was still the same, 250 So I could meet those, I could meet those needs. Right. So for me, it was the first time living on my own and really like just being an adult. So the thought of control out deleting that and moving to a coast and still trying to do comedy in a region that I didn't know a lot about and that I was very intimidated by. New York for sure, because you know, I'd come up here I try to come to New York three times a year and just get a set somewhere just to see how my jokes match up with the New York comics and all of that stuff. And, you know, I think I was okay, but there were there were a lot of bombs. And now that I'm older, I realize that I wasn't talking about shit. And that's the difference a lot of the time with comics in the South and Midwest. Creatively, we pick up a lot of bad, a lot of bad habits, man. Well, I think that's the case for anywhere where you're playing a lot of one-nighters those kind of crowds you have to, you feel like you have to appeal. Well, yeah, because you're torn. You're torn between doing the joke you want to do and doing the joke that'll get you rebooked. Right. Because the owner's in the back. He's not evaluating this joke for content and the arc or the real well-written craft. So says, nah, they didn't laugh, which means they didn't drink, which means I didn't make any money. So you're not coming back here because you're not good for business. Right, it's the show business. Yeah, so, you know, that part of it was definitely, it was eye-opening to come to New York and get kicked in the dick and then go back to the South and crush with the same jokes, <laughs> which would, like, literally throw you off. It's like, you have this joke, and you're like, why is this Waffle House joke not working? Like, oh, there's no Waffle Houses. Won't you get north of fucking Raleigh, doing a dummy? <laughs> Why are you doing a Waffle House joke in New what York? Did you, what did you want to have happen when you moved to L.A.? What was your, was what was your plan? I had a meeting. I had meetings with CBS and Fox. And, you know, I did the Montreal Comedy Festival, which, you know, for people who don't know much about stand-up, the Montreal Comedy Festival, that's like the, the NFL Combine it's the Paris Fashion Week of comedy. It's where you want to be. It's where you want to do really well in front of a bunch of people that matter. You know, people who have the opportunity to, you know, change your career. And I had a really good set. And so, you know, I went out to L.A. And it didn't go right. You know, it didn't. I just misplayed a lot of stuff. You know, um, I had my meetings with the networks or mm -hmm. whatever, and nothing came of that. I guess there was nothing in my life interesting enough for them to try and turn into a show because. Is that what I, you wanted at the time? You wanted yeah, a sitcom? Yeah, I wanted a sitcom. I was taking the acting classes. You know, as soon as I got out there, I'd sign up with old Leslie Kahn, like all the other greats do, and learning the basics. And But at the same time, 
it was funny because I was finally headlining in the South and Midwest. Like this thing I'd fought so hard to finally break through, I'd broken through. And every club that was booking me was booking me as a headliner. And I was only making, you know, 1200 bucks a week. But when that same club used to pay you $75, I was fucking huge. Right. But now I live in L.A., so I got to eat $400 just to go make the 12. So I'm back to basically making feature money as a head. Because you're flying instead of driving. Exactly. And you got to rent the fucking car because I didn't have enough TV credits for them to arrange for pickup at the airport. Uh-huh. They didn't give a shit. So I moved to L.A. and immediately started working in the Midwest for like two years. <laughs> I was in L.A. I lived in L.A. I paid rent in L.A., but I was only in L.A. an average of eight days a month, if that. Always gone. Still a road dog. Which defeats the fucking purpose of moving to L.A. Right, why are you? Didn't understand it. Ain't nobody to tell me. You know, so. Right, you could have still done that from Birmingham. Yeah, I should have never moved. But I needed to move if I wanted to get the show because the moment that the industry thinks that you don't live on a coast, you're irrelevant because they don't think you're serious about this. And as well, they should. So, you know, my first two years in L.A., I spent at the airport just catching flights, man. And that was the time when I should have been working harder to get past at all of the clubs and working harder to forge relationships with other comedians. And, you know, and in that regard, you know, I played it wrong. And that's because, you know, I feel like you're you're taught a different dream as a comic that comes up in the middle. You know, and you definitely don't have the veteran guidance because you're not meeting a lot of the vets. And when you do, you're emceeing and you're not allowed in the green room half the fucking time. So it's not like you can even chop it up with people that know better. And that's not a knock on all of the headliners that I've ever worked with in the South, but you right there in the South with me. So there was shit you couldn't have known. None of us knew. So you get to LA and you start realizing certain things and you go, fuck, I'm not, like that shit was just preschool. This is where the career starts. I was nine years in when I moved to LA and thought I was doing something. I, and I had credits. Right. I had, and I had white credits. I had, you know, I, oh, fuck, I've been on Letterman, bitch. I know what the fuck I'm doing, <laughs> you know? been on Letterman, I've been on Premium Blend, motherfucker, you know? No clue what I was doing. And so that's when I started, you know, the, the one upside to it was that by staying on the road those first two years in LA, I was eventually making enough money where I was getting flown and I could work a few days less. So at this point I'm in LA 10 to 12 days a month. You know, I'm still working a lot, but I'm making more money. So I was able to scale back the travel and actually start entrenching myself in the L.A. culture and started making a little traction, you know, making friends, making connections, shaking hands. How, and how much at that point, this is when Last Comic Standing enters the picture. Correct. And that kind of changes the game for you because then you are hanging around a lot of comedians. Correct. That that changed 
that changed everything. That changed everything. Um, you know, I auditioned for the show. I made it to the semis in 07 and didn't make it past that group of 80 or whatever mm-hmm. the fuck it is. And did the auditions and, you know, did all the semifinal stuff and made it to the top 10. So this is, uh, this is 2010. And so, you know, being on that show that really did change my perspective, not just being on the show, but when I made, I made it to the top five, I think what I got, I got third place. So we go on this national tour for 80 days, which is just a long fucking time, man. But we were gone. It was more than 80 days. It was 80 cities. We did four cities a week from like, I don't know, August to January. Like it was a long time every week. And myself, Felipe Esparza, Tommy Jonigan, Mike Kaplan, and the late Mike Stefano. And we're on this tour bus every day. It was a bus. It was a bus. It was a bus to like the last month and a half. And then it was just flights. Okay. But on that bus every day, you start talking about goals and long-term shit and what you want to do. And when you're around like-minded people like that, you start thinking long game for yourself. And that was the first time I really started, well, I just want to be funny. Well, they won't give me a sitcom, so I'll just get on TV and I'll go back to the South and just be a headliner and sell these tickets on some black Brian Regan type shit. That's what <laughs> I was thinking. Bruce Bruce or something. Um, so I want to see a Brian Regan Bruce Bruce tour now. That would be. I want to see the fucking audience. <laughs> I want to see a Brian Regan fan sitting chilling next to a Bruce Bruce fan. They got more in common than they think. Yeah. Um. So when we got off the tour, that was when I really started thinking long term about all right. Well, what is it I want to accomplish? What is it I want to do? You know. And. Um, a guy who I made a connection with in that time in L.A. is a guy named Steve Byrne. And so Steve Byrne calls me about the blue after last comic standing. He goes, hey, job on the show. I got a sitcom I'm working on. I think you should, um, you should audition for it. And everybody's got some shit they're working on. Right. Whatever, dude. Yeah, man. Fine. Sitcom. Whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talk to you later. Um, I get a job offer from the same radio station that wouldn't give me health insurance um, to host my own morning show. And they say, we'll let you host the show and we'll give you full creative control over everything but the music. And I go, so I can create whatever bits and comedic segments I want. And they go, yeah, we don't care. Just do it within these time parameters. I go, cool, I'll take the job. So I pack my U-Haul, I go the fuck back to Birmingham because I figure if I could build this show funny enough, fast enough, there's a show that comes on in New York called The Breakfast Club. It's a New York morning show, but their clips get passed around nationally because it's good radio. Right. And, you know, Steve Harvey and all of these guys, this point, Ricky Smiley is matriculated up, and 
and shit, man. Like, I was like, all right, well, I can build a syndicated show. All I have to do is do funny segments and do stuff that's different. That was my first goal was to create stuff that was different from whatever had already been done in urban radio. Even if it sucked, we're going to be different. And, and you already knew the radio markets. Correct. So I already knew what cont- content-wise, I already knew what was out there. So we start putting together the show. I get a call from Steve Byrne. Hey, man, it's time to audition. Are you fucking serious? So I go back to L.A. And I audition for Sullivan and Son on TBS. Do the audition. Get back to Birmingham. Hey, man, you're really good. Can you come again so we can see you again? Now, <laughs> here's the other curveball. I've told no one in L.A. that I've moved to Birmingham. So they're calling you thinking you're down the street. Why not let them think it? Because if they find out I moved, they don't. They probably don't call you. No one hears I moved to Birmingham to do something that I believe will put me in a better position when I'm back in L.A. and I will have more leverage because I will have airwaves. And if people have access to airwaves, it gives me access to stars and the ability to collaborate and work with other people. All they hear is I gave up. And I went back to Alabama. So I couldn't tell anybody that. You know, I would tweet about my morning show, but not often. We created a separate Twitter account, mm-hmm. and that's where we promoted it from. You would have been, you would be hard-pressed to find anything on that just said, hey, listen to my show today, 6 to 10. So I go back to L.A. Because if he didn't know I was going, if I had gone back to Alabama, he would have never called. Right, he figured you would. Done. I'm done. Packed with that. it in. Yeah. So I go back to LA two more times. I booked the show. We shoot the pilot, and like four months pass. In the meantime, I'm doing my morning show. <laughs> In the meantime, I'm doing my morning show, and everything's going fine, man. Like it's with solid ratings. It's going well. TBS picks up the sitcom. So now for three months in the summer while we're shooting the sitcom, I have to do my morning show from a satellite box in a hotel room. And it was rough. But you want to do both things, you got to do it. Right. So we shoot the show, and we do a quick little tour, me and Steve and all the boys, and I go back to Alabama. And I won Alabama Large Market Morning Show of the Year, which doesn't mean shit to anybody. But to me, it meant everything. Like That was, we got recognized for doing different types of segments and just weird comedic stuff. Like, there was no black guy doing the old lady voice. There was no black preacher voice jokes, which works for tons of morning shows. But... To me, it existed everywhere else, so why would we do it here? So we figured out ways to make sports funny. And we just, man, it's just so much stuff, man. And I'm just so happy that they gave me that opportunity. So second season of Sullivan and Son. Sullivan and Son gets announced to get picked up for season two. I get called into my boss's office, and that's where they basically go, look, you're doing this, you're doing that. It's too much. I go, just let's just try it. Let's not fight. Nah, it's not. Sorry. So they let me go, and they kind of restructured the whole morning show to mm-hmm. you know what it is now. And 
you know, on the one hand, you want to be mad about it, but, you know, they had to do what they had to do. But I went back to L.A., and now I was working, and I had a vision. So then you start understanding how to work the channels, who to talk to, how to stay on the industry's radar and stuff like that. And that, for me, was the ultimate education. And you and did you were you did these videos, sports videos. Oh yeah, that was after Sullivan and Son. Yeah. So Sullivan Son goes three years. Basically, my next three years in LA is doing a sitcom, touring with the boys. So six months of the year was TBS related stuff. And then the other six months was my regular stand up headlining dates, which at this point now are paying way more than they were paying in like 07, 08 when I first got to LA because I had last comic standing and Sullivan and Sullivan is on. So I'm making enough money to where I can take a week off every month and focus on local projects and everything. And so when Sullivan and son got canceled, um, I started implementing a lot of ideas to try and create sports content that was also funny and poignant. And I was doing these weird sports blogs where I did a, you know, like a celeb pick them basically, but just doing it by myself. Again, one man banding my camera. Doing you know. like tailgate situations. And yeah. Um, the reason why I'm thankful for that when it comes to radio is because um, creatively everything that I did on the radio was just stuff that I repurposed for everything that I was doing over the course of that year after Sullivan and Son. Radio was basically the incubator for half of the ideas that I was able to implement two years later. And so I started with the sports stuff. I had this um I had this web series that I still gotta I gotta do more of it. Um this web series called New Faces of Black History. And it's basically where I honored people that had nothing to do with black history, but I connected dots to prove that this person really is. And it's, it was silly, it was nonsensical, right. but it worked in radio and it fucking worked visually. And it was beautiful. And I don't know, I, there's a lot to be learned about digital marketing. So it didn't get the respect that I feel like it should have gotten. I'm gonna cock and reload and do it again. Well, although, although both those things, that web series, New Faces of Black History, and then they also the Pick'em sports things, there's not that much of a leap from those things to doing a daily show That's what I'm getting segment. to. That's what I'm getting to. Was that so, in your head at the time? No, um, I didn't, I had auditioned for the daily show the year Wyatt got it, and my audition was so terrible that I just said, all right, that's just not my, because right. I thought I'm a comedian with a degree in broadcast. I should be perfect for this shit. <laughs> but I I thought I did okay. But then I heard Wyatt, and I don't even know if he remembers this, but I heard Wyatt's audition through the door as I was gathering my stuff. And I went, oh, that's how you do it. <laughs> Fuck. Like, I, just, I knew I wasn't going to get it. So, yeah. So Wait, I, what had you done that was so different from what Wyatt had done? I wasn't listening to the... I didn't audition with John. I auditioned right. with producers. But right, because he started... Right. If, you, if you watch 
the Daily Show correspondents and how they acknowledge John Stewart or Trevor mm-hmm. or any reporter in real life that's talking to the anchor back in the newsroom, there's a they're listening. There's an active listening to it. I don't want to get all acting class on you, but there's a sense of acknowledging that you heard what that person said and that you're just not a fucking robot reading the lines you've memorized. And I was a robot. And there was nothing interactive in my tone. There was nothing engaging. There was nothing conversational in how I delivered the information. It was horrible. I fucking, it was garbage. There's no way I should have gotten it. Thank you, Roy. <laughs> See how I just actively. It was, it was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, thank you. So, so the year after Sullivan and Son, um, I'm, de- I'm doing these sports blogs on my own, which eventually lead um, USA Today catches wind of them, and they hired me to do like three or four times during the NFL season, something similar. And I started doing that with them, and I was doing some stuff with Fox Sports, and two things connect to another, and I get on ESPN Sports Nation. And so I get an opportunity to get on Sports Nation. I don't know. So I get an opportunity to get on Sports Nation. And from there, I became a regular. So I was on Sports Nation probably, you know, every other month for a good little while. And then I booked the Whoopi Goldberg sitcom, which ended up not going with a comedian, Jermaine Fowler. Oh, right, yeah. Well, excuse me. I booked the Jermaine Fowler sitcom <laughs> that Whoopi Goldberg was right. on. <laughs> um, and so then at that point, um, there was a rumor that The Daily Show was looking for new people when Trevor started. And, you know, they sent over a writing packet and everything, but at this point, I knew that world because, you know, dude, I was doing stuff for the MLB network and the NFL network, and it was all the same. Here's something serious. Sprinkle some funny in it, please. Right. Because these other people aren't allowed to be funny. But we also need you to be responsible enough to not piss off the teams, the sponsors, or the athletes. So it's a very tough minefield to navigate. And I get to call the Daily Show's looking for stuff. I send them new faces of black history. So I send them that. I send them one or two other things that I'd shot on my own. And that was enough to get me the audition. And so go in, get the audition, and book the show. So it's... Everything is connected, man. And, you know, having that foresight to, while being a stand-up and while being out there working the road and just trying to just get funny and work on this new 10 minutes and I just want, I need a new closing joke. Did you hear Louie? Trash is his hour area. That's crazy. I could never do that. While you're doing that, there's still got to be something else on the stove because that stuff is going to help your career too. And that was the biggest lesson. That was the biggest thing I took away from Last Comic Standing was because I was talking with guys that had forward vision that had nothing to do with selling more tickets in Tampa. You know, that was, you know, for me, that was the turning point. Um, Because, you know, those, all that stuff, the radio segments, all of these weird radio ideas that I was allowed to do, I wouldn't have even had the confidence to put that stuff online 
had I not already known that it works on the radio, which wouldn't have happened if I didn't have forward-thinking bosses who wouldn't have let me do this shit, but they did. So, you know, when I booked The Daily Show, it's, it's like I look back on 17 years of just doing stuff, and I go, oh, that was preschool. <laughs> this is college. Because now every single skill set that I have ever built is being tested on a daily fucking basis. There's the script writing, the joke writing aspects of it. There's an improv element. I'm still trying to sign up for improv classes, but when you're going back and forth with an interviewee in the field, yeah. it's not that different from a prank phone call, and I've done 700 of them. So this person zigs, I gotta know where to zag, and do it without cracking a smile because you'll blow the joke. You know, there's a stand-up element, there's a perform, you know, the performance side of it, and there's still a news and acting part of it too. Right. Like when you go back, you know, and one of the first things I did when I got hired, um, God damn man, if every comedian could have access to the Daily Show's tape library, you would know just how much you're lacking as a performer when you watch these fucking gods, man. Like I just I watch old Steve Carell's like oh three, oh four shit. Mm-hmm. It's killer. Oh yeah. It's killer. Will Moore and John Oliver, man, and Jason Jones. Like, I remember that two thousand four election. They were that was a crazy bonkers all star correspondent class. Yeah. So you had so you before you even did a segment on air, you were looking through the hell the, yeah the old tapes yeah i mean we were there three weeks before the first air mm-hmm. we did some test shows and everything you know get the kinks out but yeah i just watched all of the course i'm still not done watching all of these old because i can watch the tape in its edited form as it aired mm-hmm. or i can watch the raw of the interview like oh where John Oliver just straight undresses a motherfucker about gun control, you can see in the long form of the interview, you can see what he did to this person with his questioning. To get him to to get To get to that place. Because to some degree, a good interview, um, even in the real journalistic world, I'm speaking like from some shit I learned in college, it's about making the person feel relaxed because you get a better conversation from a relaxed person, period. Doesn't matter what you're doing or what you're doing. It's the first thing some counselor tries to do with some fucking kid when the kid comes in angry. They try to calm them down because that's the only time effective communication can happen. The most effective form of communication can happen. And so you see... You just, I can't explain it, man, but you just see how each correspondent in their own way. What their techniques What are. their techniques are to calm in this person. Or you pull a Rob Riggle and you just basically bum rush the interview to a point where you, like, I want you to answer these questions in a heightened, heightened state of emotion. Not all the time, but for this particular interview, this particular topic, 
I think this will be funnier if this person is on edge. So let me do things to put them on edge, then ask them the fucking question. Like, man, I could go on and on, man. You, you Which, just you watch that stuff, man, and like. So when you go into the library, it's like it's like it's like listening to them Red Fox tapes when I was in the seventh grade, yeah. man. Just freaking watching old school Colbert, fucking Samantha B. Oh my god. Dude. When when you go and look up a an old clip, how do you decide what to look for? Are you just randomly like just watch it and take hitting notes. like shuffle or are you going, I wanna see what this person did about this topic or no. when you put it into the search fields? No, the topic is irrelevant as much as it is just the person. Okay. So I'll go Colbert and then it'll give me everything he did. Mm-hmm. And then through that, I can just search the interview pieces. Or I could go, all right, Asmanvi, or even Olivia Munn. Like, I've seen all of her stuff. Like, you, you just What go. am I in the mood for today? Yeah. And it's like, I want to see what Kristen right. Shaw is up to today. Yeah. Let's see what happened. And you watch it. And when you watch 10 straight pieces of one person, you see the tendencies and you see what their strengths are. It's no different than breaking down game tape as a football player. Yeah. You watch a running back do one thing 15 times, you know that's his thing. Right. And like, oh, okay. That, but then you'll see that 11th clip where he takes the thing that he normally does and does just a small tweak to it, and it changes. Like, I'm talking stuff as subtle as knowing when to whisper when you're talking to someone. Whispering is probably one of the most underused comedic tools there's not a lot of, like just think about how many comedians that get on stage right. and whisper any any part of their joke just delivered at a low decibel right i'm when, immediately thinking of jim gaffigan because he's got that whisper voice maybe but that's more of a but that's more of a set piece yeah that's more of a alter ego right type thing who's a whisperer yeah oh my god why does he do that what am i thinking hungry but that's but to deliver a punchline as a whisper but to deliver a punchline it just be talking like this and this and this and then the republicans like stuff like that right and you see that shit man it's like it's like literally not knowing how to play basketball and you're just watching jordan highlight reels all day so that first night which was also which was also trevor's first night so there was all sorts of hype and hoopla and expectations and pressures. How did you feel in the moment of it? Nervous, but my nervousness was about whether or not the people are going to laugh. In the studio audience. Yeah, or Or um, Yeah, well, I mean, to me, the audience is the litmus of what the people at home are doing. Are they going to get me? Am I right for this? When you think about a Daily Show correspondent, do I fit this? My comedy is opinionated, and it's about society, but I'm not Bill Maher. You know, I don't break down politics. Like, I know a little bit about politics, but, you know, I'm not Colbert. In that sense, I have a, but I have opinions, so then I should belong, right? I don't know. 
Just deliver your opinions funny, and they'll just trust it for a while. But the, the difference between that type of nervousness and before is that every other time in my career, it's don't forget the jokes. That's literally the only thing I'm thinking before I walk out on stage is don't forget the joke. Um, you know, because in doing Conan, when I, you know, when I went back to L.A., when I booked Sullivan and Son, that's kind of when I became a regular on Conan. TBS Synergy. Yeah. Um, I'd done it the year before, and then when I booked Sullivan and Son, the relationship flourished a little more. But, you know, J.P. Buck, I'm, I'm thankful for that because those four or five times that I was on Conan from, like, 08 or 09 to when I, um, to when I left L.A., um, that was a great opportunity to get relaxed in pressure situations. To do to, to do TV comedy every year is a blessing, and you know, for the most part, I've gotten it since Letterman, Ferguson one year. I don't, you you can count Comics Unleashed, but that's live to tape, so it's kind of a different scenario. Right. Um pre-recorded I mean but when you're doing a live actual show man that shit is scary and you fuck up one literally your your act is so precise in that four and a half minutes you fumble one goddamn word the joke is ruined and there is nothing you can do to change there's no topic you can switch to there's not enough time the band will play and the fucking curtain will drop on you and it will be the weirdest fucking set of your life in front of millions of people. Don't forget the fucking joke, dummy. Whereas with The Daily Show, I know I was going to remember the jokes. Because I've been here before. I've done that. There's a teleprompter if I want to look at it. I'd rather not, but it's there if I need it. So now my issue is delivering this right. And, you know, making sure that I nail the performance and that the people laugh. So it was, ner the, the short answer is nervous, but for different reasons. Nervous for reasons that I've never been nervous for before. And then how did you feel at say 11.20 or 11.30 <laughs> when the show airs and you start to see the reactions come in? And um, so many of the reactions are as much about you that first night as they were about Trevor. I was happy for Trevor because, you know, Trevor gave me the opportunity. You know, for whoever you're auditioning in front of, for whoever you're auditioning in front of, at the end of the day, it's the host's decision on whether or not you help to complement his vision. So if Trevor trusts me, if Trevor trusts me enough to hire me, then it's my job anytime I'm on camera to prove I'm right, period. It's my job, as best of my ability, to fucking kick the viewer in the balls and make them learn something and make them laugh and then go the fuck home. And if people like me for that, great, because then it means they like the show. So, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was funny is that my mom, my mom, I, my mom's one of those people, 
no matter how good you do, there's something wrong. <laughs> and not in a pessimistic way, just a right. mama way. They just <laughs> they have a more critical eye. Your left your left sleeve was wrinkled. You didn't steam your jacket. Like, that's what the fuck you noticed, Joyce? That's not what I said. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Uh, but no, I was I was happy. I was happy for Trevor. I was happy that people are receiving the show well. And even now, you know, all of the correspondents, all of the new guys, you know, they're nailing it. And, you know, for me, it's I'm still learning a lot about this. And, you know, Jordan Klepper and Hassan Minaj and, Jessica Williams, like they've been really cool about giving me pointers and tips on figuring out how to play certain situations, not only in the field but in studio. Right. But yeah, it's it's been it's been good so far. It's it's definitely the most fun I've had as a comedian, but it's also the most responsibility I've felt for my material, if that makes any sense. Whereas I could go on stage and just say whatever when I'm alone and dothing. But on TV in front of millions of people, you have the opportunity to touch people. You have an opportunity to really affect change. You know, John Stewart talks about the show being the war on bullshit, and it is. And that's a mission that's greater than me. So it's my job to come in and honor that mantra. And when it's time for me to get the fuck out the way, I get the fuck out the way. But, you know, in the meantime, support Trevor. So when you, uh, it's 2016, and when a new person comes up to you and asks you how to do, how to climb that mountain that you've climbed, what's the first thing you tell them? I mean, not, there's no faxing anymore. Yeah. There's no mailing of videotapes. What's the first thing you tell a new person? I've always said the first thing I would do if I were starting now, first thing you got to do is have a social media following. And it sucks. The purists hate it. You know, well, uh, uh, Google shit don't mean shit. Fuck a, fuck a YouTube subscriber. And I tell these jokes. You know. That shit is antiquated thought, man. That shit is 1991 thinking you keep telling these jokes so you can get on tv and then what i did letterman in 06 and all that did was get me a couple extra dollars so what you think a network credit gonna get you now it'll get you some leverage with the agencies and the industry but in terms of really moving the needle and making money you know you gotta have an audience now and that's it and that's what the gatekeepers have decided. So either you roll with that shit or you go to fuck the Golden Corral and go get you a job. Because I'm not saying it's right, but that's what is. So you gotta roll with what is or just reinvent the wheel on your own. And that's a long, arduous road. I'm not saying that you won't make it just ripping stages and constantly telling jokes and being a joke writer and being a really good joke writer, but you're gonna be a tougher sell to a network because Unfortunately, they look at people's digital, um, fuck, as many meetings as I've been in, I know the word, digital footprint. Mm -hmm. Well, what's the size of his digital footprint? Because, you know, it used to be 
like a, an agent or a network would approach you 20 years ago, 20 years ago and say, you're funny. Let me help you find an audience. Whereas now it's, you're funny. Where's your audience? Because that's what some people, but Nick Cannon just put up a tweet like the first or second week of January. Mm-hmm. Who's funny online? Because I'm looking to cast a new member of the Wild and Out crew. Even Nick Cannon, he's telling you what are you doing? If you're funny online and you already have views, likes, and hits or whatever that prove that there is a demand for what you curate, then I will put you on a bigger stage to do what you're already doing so well. Nick Cannon ain't holding auditions and picking you just on the merits of your funny. If you're funny, let's see some proof of it. That's where YouTube fucked it up for you guys because it took the guesswork out of it for the execs. Right. So... It's, they know how many people are watching it. I know whether or not you're funny now because I just saw that fucking link you sent me. So I don't have to book you and sign you to a $100,000 holding deal and then go, oh my God, he's fucking horrible. And then I lose my job. No, I'm going to vet the fuck out of you. So if you're new and you're starting out, I would... There's got to be something fun and easy for you to do online. I don't care if it's a podcast, web series, you telling three jokes of the day or whatever. Figure out a vehicle for yourself and produce it. And and no money's no excuse. You got $500, you go to Best Buy and get a goddamn camera. And you can shoot on some quality shit. Keep it 13 days and then return it. And there's no reshelving fee. Yeah. I used to do that with Circuit City. That was a dated reference. But when I was down south, I used to do that with Circuit City. It was a twenty percent restocking fee. I just looked at it. I just it just it was a rental fee. Yeah, who was it? Um just this past year, Owen Smith did a special thirteen was, iPhones. That was all shot on iPhones and then he returned all the iPhones at Motherfucker the end. about thirteen iPhones and shot a special four K and then returned all the iPhones. It can be done. Yeah. And if you're a dreamer, meet with other dreamers. Get with people that have visions of themselves beyond the present. That's the biggest mistake that I made was not hanging around enough people that had bigger dreams because then your dreams don't seem so fucking retarded or stupid or whatever word doesn't offend you. Like, People people try to act like your dreams don't make any sense. And I mean, I hung around guys like that in the South who, why you doing that? What you doing that for? They ain't, man, them people ain't studying you. you like, you got to get them people out your life, man. But you have to create for yourself because the thing that they are discovering, this is always the biggest debate about the whole internet stars and the YouTubers or whatever. They're creating their own thing for themselves and they're making money. They're making real money. Like I've heard of guys getting 30000 for product placement in a six-second buying video. You do four or five of those, that's more money than I've made probably my entire career <laughs> on the road. So there's ways to create and do things that help you find your audience separate from your, from your stand-up because you can't just put your comedy online. I mean, you could, but... And you can do that from Birmingham. Yeah. 
You can do that from anywhere. And, you know, I feel like people discourage themselves or they try to discredit something. But just I'm telling you, the people that are going to run the entertainment world are the ones the ones that aren't yet already part of shows or they don't have a credit that's solid, it's going to be the people that already have an audience. It's the people that already have someone focused on them. And if that person can act and perform, you better fucking watch out, man. I'm telling you right now, this little motherfucker King Batch, he's going to be a problem, man. That dude is good. Yeah, he's good. And he started he started doing vines and all the social media stuff. But when the industry came calling for him and came and got him, that little motherfucker was ready. He can act. He has a following and he's doing comedy. And even with the stand up, he's smart enough to put enough people on the show with him that it's a total show. So that it's not a lot of weight on him while he still learns that craft and works that out as well. Right. It's brilliant. So guys like that are who they're ultimate, ultimately going to be looking for. And there's a lot of Instagrammers and YouTubers that just they, they're good at that. They're good in 15-second clips, but they don't know how to write. They don't know how to properly put a sketch together. So go read a fucking book. Go watch a fucking YouTube. There's plenty of... And it's no excuse to not know how to do some shit with YouTube. YouTube can teach you how to make a bomb and lasagna and how to write a decent sketch. That 15-second shit works online, but when you're trying to graduate to real money on television, there's rules, there's structure, and you have to learn that. So don't disregard that. But, you know, you have to take all that in, man. And, you know, so in short, (laughs) surround yourself with people that dream big. Learn as much as you can, and you know you can never be doing too much, even if you go out with a chick who told you one time that you were doing too much. That's why y'all only went on two dates. I'm not speaking personally here. No. Well, <laughs> Roy, it's uh, it's so great to see everything that you've done in your adult life is paying off in spectacular Man. fashion now. All I'm trying to do is stay employed, man. Just get to the next joke. That's it. That's all I'm trying to do. Well, thanks for spending some time with me. Oh, always. Dude, you're a defender of the art form. I love your fucking blog, man. Comics, comic is the shit. Well, I better get back to it then. (laughs) Thanks, Ray. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.